The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning. Dr. Steve was originally scheduled to preach today, so uh, sorry to disappoint if you were expecting him, but it was pretty obvious by the middle of the week that uh, his recovering was coming along much slower than we had hoped, so I'm pinch hitting for him today. I think the same sickness actually hit our family last month, and it started with uh, my son Caleb, and then it hit my wife Kim, and then, and then Timothy, and, and I knew it was coming for me. And it felt like Passover at our house, like the angel of death was like making its rounds. And sure enough, I got slammed earlier this month, and my daughter Sayla um, got sick right after me. But it's that time of the year, right? I mean, everyone's getting sick. It's January in Chicago, and I think there's so many of us that are dealing with illnesses right now, and the, and the prayer list is, is quite long. But this morning, I wanted to share a story from the Bible that has a bit to do with sickness and healing. And it's, it's an obscure little story. It's tucked deep into the book of, of Numbers. And it's very easy to miss, only six verses long. And yet, I think it's really packed with some incredible truth about the gospel. And it's very instructive for us even today. This is the fifth time I've preached at ICC, and I, and I realize this is already the third time I've preached on, or at least referenced, the book of Numbers. And so you guys might think that's a little strange. I, I guess you can call me a numbers guy. But it's not because I'm an accounting major or was an accounting major. It's not because I'm the executive pastor here. It's just I just love seeing pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I think seeing the picture woven into every book of the Bible is just, a, it's just an awesome testimony of the fact that the book that we hold in our hands or, or the Bible that we have you know, on our phones is, in fact, the Word of God. Because when you think about it, who could assemble... 66 different books into one book, written by 40 different authors over thousands of years, and yet still preserve an incredible integrity in design and a unity in its message. Only God could do that. Only a supernatural author who stands outside of time itself could assemble such a book. Um, And I've heard it said that the Old Testament or the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And what that means is the gospel and Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament, but there's a sense in which it was hidden, it was concealed until Christ's appearing. But now, in today's day and age, having the New Testament, having an understanding of Christ, having an understanding of the gospel, we're now able to see all that the Old Testament was foreshadowing all that it was pointing us to. And so there's this progressive revelation of Jesus Christ throughout the chronology of Scripture. And the prophets give hints of what's to come, of who is to come. But even they could not really see and understand, I think, the same way that we can today um, because it wasn't fully revealed to them yet. And glory to God, we have God's final and complete word in our hands. And yet, I know even for myself, you know, how often do we take that for granted? So with that in mind, let's, let's read this passage written by Moses under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit 1,400 years before Christ was born. Let's I'd like to read it for you. Chapter uh, 21, verse 4 through 9. 
It says, From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea, this is the Israelites, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Truly, it's a gift from you. And it's not just a testament, but a testimony that you are a supernatural God and you stand outside of time. Only you could have assembled such a good and glorious book that tells us, Lord, all about you and that we can rest assured in, Lord, is the ultimate truth. And so, Lord, today we come before you. We want to hear from you. We want to receive your word. Let your spirit, Lord, do what only your spirit can do. Speak into our hearts. Move us, Lord. Awaken us, Lord, uh, to the things which you uh, have for us. We lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is such a strange, strange little story, isn't it? I mean, uh, what's the point of, of these six verses in the Bible? Why is it even here? Is this, is this some type of morality tale about God's? Uh, having issues with griping or complaining. Um, you know, sometimes in my weaker moments as a parent, I, I get really tempted to want to tell this story to my children as an illustration. Just stop complaining, all right? <laughs> God hates complaining. Keep complaining and maybe some serpents will come and attack you. But we know that's not true. That's not the point of the story. And when I first heard this story as a child, I the truth is, that is what I thought. I thought, wow, God, God doesn't like complaining. Don't complain. And it put the fear of God in me. And I'm not talking about a good kind of fear. It's a very unhealthy kind of fear. But that's not the right conclusion. I, I, that's not God's intention. There's so much going on here, and I think God wants us to know something about him. That's very important. And he wants us to know something about us, ourselves. That's very important. And that's why these six verses are here. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I had this um, almost unhealthy infatuation with snakes. And my dad, he didn't want us to watch TV all summer, and so he'd often take us to the library during summer break. And I'd check out like ten books, and I'm not kidding, nine of the ten books would be about snakes. And I just loved reading about snakes. Uh, our subdivision backed up into some woods uh, in the um, suburbs of St. Louis that I grew up in. And one of the neighborhood friends and myself would often go into the woods and we'd go hunt for snakes. This is a garter snake. This is the exact kind of snake that we would go hunting for. And we would just, I mean, we, they're everywhere. So we would just grab a bunch of them where we could find them, under rocks, um, under stumps, whatever. 
And being a good Christian boy, we'd walk around the neighborhood with our snakes and we'd start throwing them into people's roofs. <laughs> and it was kind of like the two-tiered roof, you know, where you had the windows on the, on, the, on the lower one. So we would just start laughing, thinking about some unsuspecting mom or child opening their window and all of a sudden there's a snake crawling towards them. And uh, we were bad kids. We were just bad kids. But, you know, garter snakes are one thing, right? You see them, they're harmless. They're really harmless. And part of the reason why I got so many books at the library on snakes is because I wanted to be able to identify, you know, which were the good snakes and which were the bad snakes. Right? Were the poisonous snakes and which were the pet snakes. And sometimes the differences are very subtle. Right? You just had to know uh, the exact design of their stripes, the shape of their head, the sound of their hiss or their rattle. And where I grew up in Missouri, you had to look out for water moccasins, or uh, you know, otherwise known as cotton mouths. And, and if you were swimming outside, like I remember we'd always be kind of vigilant. You see one? You, know, you see one? And we were just scared. We were scared because we knew this snake's like, you didn't mess with these snakes. They were serious business. I mean, they were very poisonous, very dangerous. And you know, most of you probably heard of the actor Harrison Ford with the recent Star Wars movie. But back in the early 80s when I was a kid, he was in his prime as an actor. And there was a movie that came out uh, when I was a kid called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was about the adventures of this intrepid archaeologist named Indiana Jones. And I want to show you a scene from this movie because I think it will give you a better sense of, of what the Israelites were dealing with in the wilderness in Numbers 21. Anybody seen that movie? Good movie. It's frightening, isn't it? There, there's really places in the world where there are thousands of snakes that congregate into a very tight area like this. And again, just imagine yourself being stuck in a place like that. And I think it's easy to read a story like this in numbers and not fully appreciate you know, the challenge of what the Israelites were facing on that day. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what, what did God want them to see that day? What does he want us to see from this story today? I think there are five things that we need to see from this passage. We need to see our sickness. We need to see our sinfulness. 
We need to see our Savior. We need to see his sacrifice. And we need to see our salvation. So we need to see our sickness, our sinfulness, our Savior, his sacrifice, and we need to see our salvation. You know, in verse 6 of Numbers 21, it reads, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Many people of Israel died. The people are getting bit, and they're dropping like flies. They're dying because once they're bit, they're infected with this, this venom. It's a very lethal poison. And it's just a matter of time before they taste death. It's 100% mortality rate. And suddenly the people of Israel cry out for help because they realize that they've been bitten. And they're sick. And they know that they need help. And the truth is, all of them are going to die in the wilderness, right? They, they know they're already going to die in the wilderness. Uh, they're there because of their lack of faith. But this incident is about to expedite the entire process, right? If anything, all this does is raise awareness of the imminence of their death. But their eyes are open to their sickness, and they, they begin to cry out for help. And it's interesting, I think, in the Gospels, when the Pharisees see Jesus eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they become incredibly indignant. Like, why, what is he doing? Why is he eating with those guys? But Jesus' response is so simple. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And at first glance, it's, you read that verse, and it's easy to, to think, well, Jesus is affirming the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's calling them righteous. But rest assured, he's, that's not what he's doing here. Jesus is simply saying that those who find healing from him will only be those who recognize that they are, in fact, sick, that they're deathly ill. Whereas those who think they are healthy and not in need of a doctor will neither hear nor heed his call. And I think that's a very scary place to be, to be deathly ill and to not even know it. I've shared this, I think, a couple of times now. Um, but when my wife was uh, sick with cancer, we, it totally blindsided us. And four years ago, life was just humming along. I, we thought she had a bad cold. It was literally four years ago around this time. It was the wintertime. And she was really sick. I remember at one point, one of the nurses just sat me down, and she just said, your wife is really, really sick. And we think about just the month. We have no idea when the cancer started growing in her body. And yet, we think about the months prior to when she began coughing and showing these symptoms. And we realize we diagnosed it completely wrong. It wasn't a cold at all. It wasn't bronchitis. It was lymphoma. And I think that's such a scary place to be. And yet, that's where all of us are. All of us are born into sin. All of us are, are deathly ill. All of us need to be saved. And yet, only some of us are able to truly recognize our sickness. And so in their desperation, the Israelites, they cry out to Moses. And it's interesting what they say. They recognize they've been bit. They know that they are sick. They recognize that death is imminent. And the first thing that they say is, we have sinned. We have sinned. Three simple words. That's all it took. And that brings me to my second point. 
We need to see not just our sickness. We need to see our sinfulness. We need to see our sinfulness. Verse 7 says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. We have spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. We need to see our sinfulness just as the Israelites did. They don't get a lot right when they're out in the wilderness, but they get this right. They got this right. They recognize that they were deathly ill, and we need to do the same. Just like them, we have a poison in our blood. It's coursing through our veins, and it's lethal. It has a 100% mortality rate, and it's called sin. Every single one of us are going to die because of sin. And we cannot blind ourselves with the false hope that somehow we can save ourselves. We need to recognize that we need help that comes outside of us. We need the blood of a Savior because our blood's been infected. We have a, we have a sin problem. And the very one the Israelites had cursed, they're now turning to and they're asking for help to save them. And this is the irony. You know, they had blamed God and Moses for bringing them out to the wilderness and causing them to suffer. When the truth is, had they simply demonstrated faith in God, faith in God's promise years earlier, remember when they're at the precipice of the promised land? If they had just trusted God then, they, would, they wouldn't be suffering out in the wilderness. They would be in the land flowing with milk and honey. And so the only reason why they were even there was because of their own lack of faith, and yet they cannot see that. They're blind to that. Until now, they see, that they see their sinfulness through their sickness. But I think this is what sin does. It blinds us to our own responsibility, to our own sin, and when, especially when we're suffering. When we're suffering because of our own sin, it's so easy to blame God. It's so easy to blame other people. And you see that their bitterness of their situation leads to their blindness, leads to their blindness. But by the grace of God, they begin to see their sinfulness because of these snakes, because of this venom injected into their bodies. You know, this is, uh, this is an election year, and so I don't know about you. I'm getting tired of hearing about these uh, presidential debates uh, because it just seems like empty words now. I mean, all, all these candidates are promising uh, that they're going to fix America, and they have their plan, and once they implement their plan, everything's going to be okay, right? Or so they would have us believe. But in my opinion, the greatest leader of all time of, of a nation was Solomon. And if the life of Solomon teaches us anything, it's that even the wisest man in the history of the world is incapable of solving a nation's problems. I mean, his whole kingdom fell apart immediately after him. And why is that? Because our greatest problem is not racism. It's not classism. It's not poverty. It's not education or lack of education. It's not climate change. It's not global warming. Our greatest problem is sin. Our greatest problem is our sin. And every single problem in this country, in this world, can ultimately be traced back to sin. And so we need one who is wiser than Solomon. Wiser than Solomon because not only is he going to rule justly, but he's going to save us from our sin. And so we, we need to see our sinfulness, but our sinfulness is what leads us to realizing our need 
for a Savior. We need to see our Savior. And that's the third point. We need to see our Savior. And so Moses cries out to the Lord, and what does God do? Tells us he gives Moses very specific instructions. He says, I want you to construct a bronze serpent. I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to raise it up. And I want you to tell the people just to stare at that bronze serpent. Just fix their eyes on that bronze serpent. Only if they do that will they live. Regardless of whether you've been bit or not, just look at that pole. Look at that serpent on that pole. And the promise was, you're going to live. You will live. Now, put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites. If you were surrounded by venomous snakes, what would your first instinct be? I know what mine would be. The last thing I would want to do is is look up. I would be looking down. (laughs) Because my feet is covered with snakes. I'm going to be staring at the snakes. And not only am I going to be staring at the snakes, I'm going to be like Michael Flatley on Riverdance, just like doing this, you know. (laughs) Just trying to kick as many snakes, trying to land on as many snake heads as possible because I want to crush them and just make sure they're not going to bite me. And so that's, that's just a natural reaction to want to save yourself is, is to do just that. And if you remember in the clip I just showed, Indiana Jones, he comes face to face with this cobra and immediately his eyes are just fixed on this cobra and, and he's petrified and he doesn't want to move because if the cobra strikes, he has to be ready to to get away. And that's our instinct too, isn't it? To fix our eyes on, on those snakes, on those things that we're so afraid of. But God commands them to do something very strange. He asks them to do something that's going to contradict every fiber of their being, to go every, against their flesh. And he's saying, don't look down. Don't look down. Look up. Look up. Look at the bronze snake, and you will live. Now, on the surface, when you read that, it it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because God just got done telling these Israelites, they know, you're strictly forbidden from worshiping any other gods and creating any graven images. They got in big trouble for that. Remember in Exodus? They got in really big trouble for worshiping a golden calf. And here we are in Numbers. Now God's commanding them to create, to build a, a bronze serpent. So what is, what's the deal here? Is the golden calf not okay? Bronze serpent, that's okay. What's going on here? You know, is God somehow contradicting himself? No, God cannot contradict himself. But he's conveying something about the gospel that I think even the Israelites didn't really fully understand then. But we can fully understand now. You see, the only way that they would find salvation was not through their own efforts to save themselves, but simply by keeping their eyes firmly fixed on that bronze serpent. And if you think about it, that that requires a great amount of faith, a great amount of faith. When a poisonous snakes are just all around you, slithering by your feet. But the Lord says, no. Keep your eyes on that bronze serpent, which I've given you. You trust me. You trust my provision for you. This is your one and only hope for salvation. This is your only hope from imminent death. 
14 centuries before Jesus even takes on flesh and bone, before the incarnation, God is telling his people, he's coming. He's coming. He's the hope of your salvation. He's my provision for you. Trust me. Fix your eyes on him. He is the author. He is the perfecter of your faith. And so we need to see our Savior because that is who God wants us to see. And we get so distracted by all the things in life that are biting at our ankles. They may not be literal snakes, but they're figurative snakes. And we're so afraid. And we can't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because we're so consumed with fear. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what fears are consuming your faith? What fears are overcoming you? What are we so afraid of losing that we cannot fix our eyes on Christ? We need to see his sacrifice. We need to see our Savior, and we need to see his sacrifice. Why a snake, of all things, of all, of all the animals of the kingdom that he could have used at his disposal, why did God choose a snake? God was very intentional about using a serpent because he was providing a type, a type of Jesus to his people 1,400 years before he would send him. And what is a type? A type is defined as a method of biblical interpretation whereby an element found in the Old Testament is seen to prefigure one found in the New Testament. It may be a person, a thing, or an event, but often the type is messianic and frequently related to the idea of salvation. That's straight from Theopedia, very authoritative source. Let me put it in my words. Like, I, you know, when I think about types, I think of it like this. God is so awesome. You know, he, he gave us his word as an expression of his love. But when I think about when I was dating Kim, you know, I would write her these long letters, and I'm sure she threw most of them away. But I would also give her, like, flowers and things. And I didn't want to just give her a letter. I wanted to, I wanted to give her something tangible as you know, physical evidence of my love for her. You know, even to this day, we do that, don't we? Whether we're married or dating, we, we don't just write notes and cards. Like, usually there's a gift associated with that card, right? And we want to give the one we love actually something physical to be a reminder of that love, even beyond the written word. And when I think about types, I think of it that way, that God in his goodness and his grace is so desperate to, to help us to understand his great love for us, that even beyond the written word, he's given us these types all throughout and we t- talked about remembering last time I spoke and just even in communion, something very tangible, something very physical to help us to understand something very spiritual about his love for us. And so God in his goodness provides these types all throughout scripture as a reflection and a reminder of his love for us. And I think the most well-known probably example of a type is found in the Passover lamb. Right? I mentioned that earlier that God institutes as their long-awaited redemption from bondage for the Israelites from Egypt, the Passover lamb. And the lamb had to be a male lamb, remember? It had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. And it was sacrificed in in each household. And this this was a a picture, this ritual was a picture of, of an innocent creature being substituted 
as an atonement for their own sins of that household. And so the blood of this lamb was to be applied on, on three different spots on the, on the posts of the door of the home. And it didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter. As long as you had that blood covered your house, you were spared. This is a type. This is a very powerful type of Christ found in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this type because we find that John the Baptist, upon Jesus' arrival, proclaims Jesus. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the ultimate Lamb. It's the Lamb of God, and God himself has provided that Lamb without blemish as an atonement for our sins. You see, it's not just a ritual. God is expressing his love through this ritual, telling us about his Son. That's why he instituted this ritual. It's a type. So what does a bronze serpent on a pole have to do with Jesus? Well, if you go one book earlier in Leviticus, you'll find that bronze is often symbolizes God's judgment. It's God's judgment. Because in order to bronze something, you, you had to put it under intense heat, right? And the heat is what removed all the impurities from that metal. And so bronze was a type of judgment. And why a serpent? Why a serpent? Why bronze serpent? Well, this is be a little easier. You know, in Genesis, a couple books earlier, Genesis 3, Satan comes in the form of a serpent to disguise himself in the Garden of Eden. And, and so serpents are understood in the Jewish mind as a, as a symbol for sin. And so if you put it all together, the Israelites were told to fix their eyes on a bronze serpent. Why? Because signifying the judgment of sin. Jesus on a cross was a symbol of God's judgment, ultimate judgment of sin. God is laying down the gospel story of salvation that to all who look upon him with eyes of faith will be saved. You know, we all know the verse, John 3.16. It's probably the most popular verse uh, in the Bible. If you watch the Super Bowl, you'll probably see some people holding it up on poster board. John 3.16. Everyone knows for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But you'll be surprised. Most people don't know John 3.15 or John 3.15. 14. But John 3, 14 and 15, very interesting. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And right before John 3, 16, this is what he says. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoa. Whoa. Here's Jesus talking to a Pharisee, an expert in the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, right? He knows numbers inside out, Nicodemus does. And so Jesus is meeting him exactly where he is. And his encounter with this Pharisee is so different from the next chapter when he encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And yet here he just meets, Mo, or he meets Nicodemus exactly where he is. This guy loves Moses. The Pharisees, they like worshiped Moses. Moses was the man, Right? And he says, look, your hero Moses, just as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I don't know if, Mo, if Nicodemus got it at that time. <clears throat> I think he did eventually get it. But when we understand this little story in Numbers, I think we can understand 
what Jesus is speaking of. He's obviously making an allusion to this very thing, this little story in Numbers, these six verses. It's about me. It's about me. And I'm going to be lifted up just as that snake was lifted up. And you're going to have to trust me as God's provision for your sin and salvation, just as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Paul understood this as well. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he writes, God made him, Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing verse, an amazing verse. Because at the cross we see that Jesus is taking on our sin. He's taking on our judgment so that we might be made holy. This is, Paul's explaining it for us. Why did he do this? It's not just so he could take our sin. He was giving us something in return. He was giving us his righteousness. And so the one who knew no sin took on our sin, and we took on his righteousness. And this brings me to my last point. We need to see our salvation. We need to see our salvation. Because if we say that Jesus died for our sins, that's really only the half of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us it's so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't come to earth simply to take on a human nature. We celebrated that last month at our Christmas service, the great incarnation. But that was just the first step. That was only part of it. He came to earth to take on our sinful nature so that we could take on his divine nature. And so, to put it more simply, God, you know, didn't just take on a human nature. He took on the worst. He took on the worst of human nature. He took on our sin. And this is what theologians call the great exchange. The great exchange. He took my sin. He took my sorrow. I take his righteousness. I receive joy. It's the most lopsided, one-sided trade in the history of the cosmos for all time, for all eternity. And yet God did that for us. He took the short end of the stick and he laid himself on the cross. This is the great exchange. And we need to live by that promise. We need to understand you're clean. You fix your eyes on Christ. You receive that by faith. You're clean. You are pure. You are righteous. You're perfect in the sight of God. You may not feel like that, but you receive that by faith. And when he looks upon you, God the Father says the exact same thing he said to his son. He says, I love you. He says, I'm, I'm very well pleased by you. And it's such a beautiful thing when you think about it, that God not only gave, took our sin, but that he gave us his righteousness. And through that, we are so well loved. And it's not because of anything that we've done. It's, it's just because of the righteousness of God's son that's been imputed to you and to me. And so there's nothing that you can ever do that can garner more favor from God. There's nothing you can do to increase God's love for you. He loves you perfectly already. And so... God didn't just take your sin. I've said this so many times already. He gave you his righteousness. And that is why the Apostle Paul constantly reminded the New Testament churches. He's always telling them, you're saints. He refers to them as saints. 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 You're saints. And it's not because they live such pure and holy lives. I mean, 
Just read Corinthians. They're really messed up people. Read Galatians. Some really messed up people. But it was to remind them. He was calling them saints to remind them that the work of Christ, that, that Christ did on the cross, it's complete. It's done. It is finished. And it's by faith now that they were to receive the righteousness of God. And now they are to go as saints and live in that promise. God cannot love you anymore. You cannot be any more righteous than you already are. You receive by faith and you live in response to that gift. See, in the end, his blood would be offered up for me and would cleanse the poison in mine, in my blood, in your blood. We just have to receive it by faith and receive, we receive his cleansing blood by faith. You know, I find it so interesting that the very first prophecy of the Messiah can be found in Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to go very far in the Bible. In the very beginning, the fall of the garden, Eden, God tells Satan in the form of a serpent. He says, he will crush your head, Jesus, and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. The Messiah, my son, will crush your head. You will strike his heel. And if you've ever seen the um, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, in the opening scene, Christ is praying in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, he's really struggling in his prayer all night. And it gets to this point where he, he's accepting the bitter cup that God has for him, the way of the cross. And Gibson, I love how he does this in his, in his sanctified imagination. Gibson imagines Jesus rising up. And do you remember the end of this prayer? And, and he's, he crushes the head of this serpent, literally. And it, it was just a nod to this verse. It's this, in the drama of the story showing in a very physical way, not just a spiritual way, of what was going to happen in the spiritual realm when Jesus took that cross. He was crushing the head of Satan. And so the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in the cross of Calvary. Satan may have caused some damage to the Son of God. He may have struck his heel. But Christ would deliver the ultimate blow. He would crush the head of Satan. He would crush his head. And this is why we don't have to look down. We can look up. We can look up. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in the finished work of the cross... We are living in the promise that he will fight our battles. He will grant us the victory. He will deliver the ultimate crushing blow on the greatest serpent of all, Satan himself. And he has done this. He's done all of it so that we could be restored back into a loving relationship with him so that we can be united with a holy God that we've been separated because of our sin. And so what was lost in the Garden of Eden is now restored in the cross of Calvary and in the empty tomb. This is, this is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the gospel in Numbers, chapter 21, just in six verses. You know, I've shared, um, like I said many times before, but um, when Kim was, was sick with, um, with, with uh, lymphoma, she had a lot of other issues, more pressing issues than even the cancer itself. And things were very touch and go the first couple of weeks. She was diagnosed, and I remember um, after she had some surgeries to deal with some of our other issues, um, they started the chemo regimen on her. And <clears throat> it was a pretty intense, aggressive regimen. And I remember 
30 minutes into the very first drug, I mean, she was going to get like five or six different types of really powerful drugs. Um, she just, she started to go code blue. And things were really touch and go. And it was really scary. I was the only one in the room. And all of a sudden, she was just in this excruciating pain. And, the, and I called for the nurse, and they came in, and they slapped the button, and everything went cold blue. And all of a sudden, there's like 20 doctors in the room, and they're trying to get her stabilized. And, and they finally do, and they pump her with all these pain meds, and so she just goes unconscious. And, and, then, they, and then we roll her over to the ICU. And I remember um, thinking... It's so hard. It's so hard to see someone that you love suffer so greatly. And I was so scared because in my mind, we had all these drugs we had to take. She couldn't even get through the first one. She couldn't even take a little dosage of the very first chemo drug. And so I remember laying in the room with her and... um, I'm sorry, it's, it's so hard even to think back. And um, I was just, I, I didn't know what to do. So I was so scared that I, my head was pressed against hers, and I couldn't even open my eyes. Um, because if I opened my eyes, I, I, would just, I just felt completely crushed by fear just completely debilitated. And I remember the only thing that would give me any semblance of peace was if I, if I just shut my eyes really tightly and just face-to-face just prayed, and I just quoted every single verse of Scripture that I could remember, every single verse. And that was the only thing that brought me any comfort. And... Um, you know, I think that it's, it's ironic. You know, I felt like um, it was that in itself was, was my way of fixing my eyes on Christ. I didn't realize it at the time. And yet, in a physical sense, here I am closing my eyes as tight as I could. And yet, in doing so, I was fixing my eyes on Christ. And that's the only place that I could find peace in that moment. <clears throat> and, you know, um, I'm sure many of you have had moments similar like that in different ways. You know, traumatic experiences in your life where fear is so, is, is so strong in your life that it's so difficult to even open your eyes. You don't even know where you're going to get your next breath. And yet, I realize, even as a believer, even who has already received um, my salvation by faith, it's so easy to succumb to that fear and to take my eyes off of Jesus. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up in a moment. I just want us to reflect on a few things here. If you would just bow your heads with me. We all succumb to fear, I think, in our lives from time to time. Fear is such a powerful emotion. And yet... Even fear itself can be a gift from God. God doesn't want us to be afraid. The most repeated command in Scripture is, do not fear. Don't be afraid. But even God in his goodness can redeem our fear. 
Tim Keller, in, in his book, The Songs of Jesus, he writes, Our fears can serve an important purpose. They show us where we have really located our heart's treasure. Follow the pathway of the fear back into your heart to discover the things that you love more than God. And so you can wallow in your fear. You can choose to live in fear every day of your life. Or you can let that fear guide you and give you greater understanding. What do you love? What do you truly love more than God? And so even our fears can serve a great purpose. Even our fears can be redeemed if they lead us to the one who casts out all fears. What are you so afraid of losing that you cannot fix your eyes properly on your Savior? Is it your family, your children, your marriage? Is it your finances? If I just get to this amount, then I'll, then I'll be happy. Is it your fame? What will people think of me? What about my reputation? What about me? See, there's so many things that can bring fear into our lives. And yet only in God can we be free from all of our fears. We just need to be honest about our fears before him. We give them to Jesus. We ask him to grant us the faith to fix our eyes on him. He's faithful. You know, this song that's playing in the background here, it's just a very simple hymn. It's a, it's a hymn that actually Kim kept coming up into Kim's mind that week we discovered she had cancer. And so I remember one week after we were diagnosed, we just started singing this hymn together in the hospital room. And it was so simple and yet so comforting. And it says, turn your eyes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. When your world becomes so dark, when you feel like the walls are closing in, when serpents are surrounding your feet, ask God, to grant you the faith to do the one thing that goes against everything you want to do. Ask God to help you to turn your eyes to Jesus, to look on his face, to fix your eyes on him. He alone is the author, the perfecter of your faith.